The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What you said about my not having friends, that cannot be a good way to live. It's the way a leader lives and works and survives. You are a leader. Yet you were angry when I did not let you sacrifice yourself for me. Well, that was my duty, not friendship. So now you teach me still another thing tonight. The fiercest part of a warrior must be his devotion to his cause. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 1st, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where we are joined once again in studio by Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, to talk about Donald Trump's first international visit as a U.S. president. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll talk about that as soon as we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, Salim, you're calling this a very exciting time. Trend-setting Donald Trump is on the road. What is your overall impression of what is happening in the world today? I'd say it is interesting time more than exciting time. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, as the Chinese say or the Chinese uh, uh, proverb goes, may you live in interesting yeah. times. And we certainly are living in interesting times. Yes, Trump's trip abroad to the Middle East, starting from uh, uh, Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, spending two nights over there, then flying out from Riyadh to uh, Tel Aviv, spending two days in Israel, visiting Jerusalem, Bethlehem, meeting the leaders over there, Israeli leaders and also the Palestinian, and then flying out from there to Rome to visit with the Pope before heading to Brussels at the NATO conference, and then to Sicily for the G7 before he returns home. So this is quite a journey, and his first journey as a president of the United States going abroad is most interesting. There's so many different symbolic uh, issues involved over here. I mean, just just look at it. The, traveling to uh, Saudi Arabia, the country, the Arab state, kingdom, which has the two holiest cities of Islam, Mecca and Medina, and from there, publicly, openly flying out to uh, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv in Jerusalem, Israel, is very significant. So going from uh, the, two, the city or the country of two holiest cities or mosques to Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people, to Rome. So he's stitching together the three world faith, the three largest world faith, Christianity, Judaism, and then Islam. So there's something to talk about there. But the speech in, in Riyadh itself was very significant, very powerful, I would describe it as. Uh, he spoke to an assembly of something like 50 
heads of states and heads of government, prime ministers, presidents, kings and chiefs uh, of the Muslim world that came to Riyadh. It was billed as the Arab Islamic Summit. And so here was the American president on his first trip abroad addressing the Arab Muslim world, over 50 countries, uh, in Riyadh. And he spoke out there in very, very powerful terms, the message that he gave. But let me back off a little bit and and say the entire uh, arrangement that was set up by the Saudi kingdom to receive him, to greet him as the head of state and as a guest and a very special guest was remarkable. It is a study in contrast, if I might say, between him and his predecessor, Obama. Obama in 2009, in his first trip abroad, chose to go to Cairo. And there in 2009, he did not speak to uh, the people of Egypt in their political setting. He went to the university, Cairo University and Al-Azhar University combined and addressed the students and through them, the academics, the students, the intellectuals of Egypt. Uh, Egypt is the largest uh, Arab country, uh, and through them to the people. And if you look at the two speeches, what Trump did and what what uh, Obama did, the study in contrast is that Trump was not meeting the people. He was meeting the heads of government, heads of state. It was an Arab Arab. Islamic State. So that was an immediate contrast. The way he was received, uh, it was a red carpet treatment that was laid out for Trump. The king went up to the plane. Trump came down. Melania came down, the first lady. The king, for the first time in public, these are very significant and symbolic things, reached out and shook hands with quote, unquote, an infidel woman, that is a white woman, you know, in mm-hmm. public. And the woman was not wearing a headscarf or any of those that thing as a show of any respect for the other culture. And Trump did not bow and did not kowtow, did not bend down and kiss the ring of the king, which is what Obama, Obama did, did yeah, when he, he, for the first time... It really time shocked met. a lot of people exactly. when that happened. So this was an immense contrast. And what you found was the warmth and the excitement that Trump generated in arriving in Riyadh and the way he was received. We have all seen the clips of the sword dance that take place, you know, and Trump joining the king and the retinue and doing the sword dance, which is the traditional dance. All of that goes to show that the Arab leaders, it's a, it's a male-dominated culture. The, Arab Islamic no world <laughs> is a male-dominated culture, which is which is often, yeah, but it is it is lost, you know. And here was a strong horse; they respect strong yes. horse. Yes, you bullies see? respect strength. strength. Bullies back down to strength, and that's how I would label well, king, the king. You might and, call and Saudi Arabia. The, you, you might call them in a derogatory term bullies, but I'm no, no, about no, the no, no, factual term. Okay. They're they're dictators, they're brutal, they have a terrible regime. But don't get me wrong, I think Trump's speech and the way he presented it was proper as a head of state to another head of state. 
in these particular fair, times. Fair enough, but but, but let's I, not whitewash I, I, Saudi no, Arabia. No, what I am talking about culture. There are male-dominated culture. There was a time when we were a male-dominated culture. We have now become basically, and that might be another topic over the last fifty, sixty years, into metrosexual. You know, transgender civilization. Yeah. We have lost our sense. Could you I know? say pussies? So, so there is. I mean, Africa is, the Middle East certainly is. These are male-dominated, powerful cultures, and 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 they don't make any bones about it. And so, Trump was received. Here was an alpha male, and that is another study in contrast with what was. Obama and his leading from behind and leading from the front. And that's what Trump... And so Trump speaks there. He stands up and he tells them, basically, you have a problem and you've got to solve that problem. It is your problem. I'm here to help you. America will help you. But this is consistent with, in my analysis, consistent with Trump's foreign policy which and domestic America first. Trump's main issue is to deliver jobs to America and get the American economy roaring back to 3% and more. Which he found an opportunity to say Precisely. so in his speech to the king. <laughs> Before he spoke, he signed a deal with the Saudi king for over $350 billion, $400 billion. And this year it will be about $110 billion expenditure of arms sale. Now, there is a whole lot of criticism we can get into. But from the Trump's point of view, he's bringing job back to America. He's bringing money. And there was no quibbling about this. You know, he's America first. So here he stands up and he says to the gathered assembly that you have a problem. You haven't done anything about this. And you've got to solve this problem. And he tells them how to solve it. So you've got a choice. This is a war of good and evil. George Bush had also said the same thing. But then Bush got waylaid into the whole neocon politics of nation building. Trump is absolutely upfront. He is America first. We are going to deal with our problem. We are going to deal with our security problem. You know, he has not minced word about it. And he has said that he's going to destroy ISIS. Remember when, when, when Obama went in 2009 to Cairo, what happened? Arab Spring and the Arab leaders that were the strong leaders that had kept a cap on this were all overthrown with Obama basically clapping yes. and cheering. Mubarak was overthrown, and then what we had? He was overthrown by the mobs in the street, and, and they elected a, a Muslim Brotherhood yeah. guy. That's what he did in Libya. He got rid of Gaddafi. Gaddafi was an SOB. Everybody knew that. But he kept a lid on these people. And what happened now? Libya is a mess. It's a nightmare. The Manchester bomber comes from Libya. His father is a member of ISIS. Uh, 9-11 made people realize that we are fighting for the survival of our civilization. We are dealing with people that want to kill us. The national security issue is an American issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not a Libertarian issue. It's an American issue. America has been attacked under different administration by radical Islam, regardless of the politics of whoever was living at the White House. America was attacked the first 
first time under the Carter administration in 1979, a Democrat mm -hmm. with the hostages in Iran. America was attacked again under Ronald Reagan administration, a Republican in 1983 with the blowing up of the Marines in Lebanon. Yep. America was attacked under George Bush senior administration. America was attacked under the Clinton administration. The first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 was under President Clinton, a Democrat. Yeah. It was actually under President Clinton that the Taliban's trained 10,000 Al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. Now, these people were not being trained for entertainment. They were trained to attack the United States of America. America was attacked under George Bush Jr. administration, a Republican, on 9-11. The only difference between the attacks of 1993 and 2001 is the buildings didn't come down. And then people thought if we just elect President Obama, all our sins are going to be forgiven. The whole world is going to sing Kumbaya. Yeah. Obviously, that did not happen. He, he sort of offered an apology for America's foreign policy and whatever else, and that it bought us no goodwill. It didn't do anything. And actually, and then you can argue about the red line in Syria and a whole bunch of other things, that when we're quote unquote nicer, even though he was at war every day of his presidency in Afghanistan and drone strikes in Pakistan and all that stuff, that the, the niceties just don't fly in reality. No, because it's not about niceties. We are dealing with an enemy bent on our destruction because of their ideology. And as a matter of fact, President Obama was complicit working with the Muslim Brotherhood because he right, thought so they, we'll, they, we'll they are a moderate organization. Actually, the person that wrote President Obama's speech, which he delivered in Cairo, the first major speech to the Arabic world, was written by the head of ISNA, the president of ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, which is an unindicted co-conspirator in the largest terrorism trial ever in the history of the United States in 2007-2008, which took place in Dallas, Texas, our government versus the Holy Land Foundation. So this happened immediately before he came into office. And he started working with the Muslim Brotherhood. He actually forced President Mubarak, who was our ally, because we got the majority of our intelligence out of Egypt and Jordan, other than Israel. Mm -hmm. And he literally threw Mubarak under the bus and forced Mubarak to accept having the Muslim Brotherhood leadership in the first two rows, uh, attending his speech in Cairo, yeah. to the chagrin of Mubarak, because he wasn't understanding what was going on. And he basically empowered them to basically become so belligerent and advance their cause. So do you think Mubarak saw the writing on the wall then that he was on his way out oh, no matter absolutely. what? You think he absolutely. knew it? Absolutely. Because it wasn't, Tahrir Square was a couple of years later, but at that point, Obama basically said he has to step down. Then they, Obama, demo, then they democratically elected the Muslim Brotherhood, and then it was worse for a year, and now they have sort of another version of Mubarak. Obama season. undermined Mubarak, and Mubarak knew it, because Mubarak knew how close Obama was working with the Muslim Brotherhood. And Mubarak knew that the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization. You know, they are classified in Egypt as a terrorist organization. They assassinated President Sadat, who mm -hmm. signed the peace treaty for Israel, and killed him because he signed the peace treaty with Israel. Yeah. That's how Mubarak came to power. And Mubarak had his thumb on them. So Obama thought, oh, Mubarak is a dictator. He's got his thumb down on these wonderful people who are just trying, you know, to express their opinion. America did not understand the Middle East. So Mubarak knew what was coming, and Obama emboldened them. Well, the answer lies back 40 years. And 
what happened in the Middle East in the 60s and 70s, that's when we started seeing the Muslim Brotherhood strengthen. And remember, the Shah of Iran, Iran was a very liberal society. Afghanistan was a very liberal society. It's incredible Egypt seeing the pictures of women right. back then at universities that were dressed like Westerners. Absolutely, yeah. like Westerners. Egypt was a liberal society. Syria was a liberal society. Now, Iraq was a liberal society. So when you look at these so-called, what we call dictators, who had their thumb, like the Shah in Iran, having his thumb down on the Khomeini followers, the Shah knew that these are the radical Islamists who want to establish the Islamic Caliphate. They want to resurrect the Caliphate. They do not want to have anything to do with westernization. They want to oppress women. They want to put women in shadours. They want men to grow beards. They were the radical ones. So you have people like the Shah or Hafiz al-Assad before Bashar, now the son. Yeah. Remember, Hafiz al-Assad, the father, killed 30,000 of them in Hama. Uh, in Syria in the 70s, 30,000 Muslim Brotherhood radical Islamists trying to rise in Syria. Sadat did the same thing to them in Egypt. The Shah tried to do the same thing to them in Iran. So they were rising all over the Middle East, wanting to establish the caliphate, wanting to bring back what we have today in Iran under Khomeini or under ISIS right now, uh, what they're doing or what Hezbollah is doing in Lebanon with the radicalization. And we did not understand what these liberal leaders, we thought of them as dictators, but they had to be what they had to be in trying to thumb, put their thumb down on the radical. But if you talk to anybody in the Middle East, back then, whether it was Sadat, Sadat signed the peace treaty with Israel. Yeah. King Hussein signed the peace treaty with Israel. Now, it takes a liberal leader to be able to think, I do not want to have anything to do with that radicalism. I want to reach out and sign a peace treaty. And now look how the deterioration of the situation, whether in Jordan, look, King Abdullah has 2% support. Yeah. That's it. So, Salim, World War II, we had a common enemy, the uh, Soviet Union, Stalin, and uh, the United States, and uh, Canada, and the free world, against uh, Nazism. And so we had to make a deal with the devil. We couldn't really defeat Nazi Germany, or maybe we could have, you know, by ourselves, at least not quickly. And so we turned to the Soviet Union, a despicable, reprehensible, brutal, uh, butchering society at the time, tens of millions dead. And we uh, basically said, let's work together, let's put aside our differences for now and work together and defeat Hitler. Is there a parallel between that and Trump going to another brutal, savage, dictatorial, reprehensible state of Saudi Arabia, shaking hands with the devil, quite literally, <laughs> I, would, I would suggest, to say, look, we have a common enemy, which is radical Islam, and I'm very pleased that he actually said that, because Obama would never have used the word Islam with terrorism, but shaking hands with the devil and say we have a common enemy, let's work together on this cause. A, co a fair comparison? Partly fair, not wholly fair. How am and, I being unfair? And, and uh, it's not about you. It is about the comparison. I mean, you, 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 you're, you're posing and framing uh, an issue. And I say partly correct because the problem is emanating from that part of the whale world. And Saudi Arabia is the ground zero 
of radical Islamism. Wahhabism, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's, uh, so now you can go deeper into Wahhabism, Salafism, and all of that. Osama bin Laden, the 14 bombers of the 19 on, on September 11, uh, 2001, were Saudi citizens. They were not from, you know, New Guinea or Philippines or Iceland. They were Saudis. Saudi actually had a role to play at 9-11 as well, it was revealed well, later that's on. that's what, you know, I mean, 14 Saudi citizens. No, 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 I, I mean actual know. funding by Saudi officials to these particular All bombers. of that. Osama bin Laden's father was the multi-billionaire who became a multi-billionaire serving the Saudi kingdom. But here's the question. Soviet Union was attacked by Hitler. You know, Soviet Union had a relationship with Hitler. The Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact uh, of 1938, 39, and then Hitler chose to attack Soviet Union. And if Hitler hadn't attacked Soviet Union, then Soviet Union would not have been in the war. If Japan had not attacked the United States, the United States would not have been in the war. So, Fair so, criticism. I mean, so why I mean, would he go to Saudi Arabia then if so they're not I'm being coming, attacked? Yeah, but, 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 but that's what I say. You're, you're framing the question is... It's partly right that he went to the ground zero to recruit these people, but it's not entirely right because here's the, the other side of the problem. America had no role in the creation of Nazism, but America does have a role in the nurturing of Islamofascism. Now, most of your audience, and maybe even you might question that, but here I will have to take you back because we suffer from amnesia. There was no Wahhabi Salafi jihadism before 1979. Of course, the Shah of Iran. Yeah. So 19th, what happened? It was it was a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that then led America with the kingdom and Pakistan to make these killers, these despicable human specimens, into freedom fighters like the founding fathers of America. Sure, the CIA backed Afghani rebels. Yeah. Pre- precisely. So these are the people, I mean, Osama bin Laden acquired his role and his fortune in terms of jihadi politics in Afghanistan. And and all of these people, I mean, the people who are now sitting in Guantanamo uh, being held there, like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the guy who killed Danny Pearl, who was responsible for 9-11, Pakistani, who fought in Afghanistan and was a hero at that time. So here we have a situation, if you go on to dig deeper, and it will need a lot of conversation, that is America and Britain, the two English-speaking powers, Anglo-American powers, are deeply complicit in the history of Saudi Arabia. Because it is the British in the first instance who supported the making of Saudi Arabia. Of course, we define the borders. Yeah. Uh, meaning the West. Going back a hundred years, I mean, World War One yeah. and all of that. And number two, I mean, it goes back to FDR, who embraced the father of the present king, you know, and have invested hundreds of billions of dollars into this kingdom that is a most despicable place. So Trump has a problem. He has to deal with the problem. You know, he has to find a solution. He is not, he's not the man who made all of these problems, but he inherited these problems. He goes into Saudi Arabia, and he lays down the rule in a sense. He's going to defeat these people. In the process, he might save the kingdom, because the kingdom is at stake now. Here is one interesting little figure. 70% of Saudi population is under 30 years age. 
The king might be secure with billions of dollar Americans are spending on him, around him. But the population, if it doesn't want the king and doesn't want the relationship and they are attracted to the argument of Osama bin Laden, no amount of money is going to save the kingdom. This is 70% of the population is under 30 years old. What does that mean? In 10 years, Saudi Arabia's population will double. It is somewhere close to 30 million. It will become in 10 years, 60 million. In another 10 years, it will double again. This is, the, this is the story of the Arab world. This is the story of Africa. This is where Europe is sinking with the immigration and migration that is taking place. Unless these countries develop and maintain and provide for jobs and, and, and opportunity and, and change the thinking of the 70% population that is under 30 years old, what is the future, not only for them, but we are bringing the problem right here. So when Saudi, when, 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 when Trump says, you know, that you've got to deal with this, and he says, it is a choice between two futures, a future of peace, prosperity, and all of that, and what, it, what is happening. And he then says, and it is a choice America cannot make for you. We are going to do our part to keep America secure. We might close the border. We will build the wall. We might put a moratorium on immigration from the Muslim world. I have talked about that. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think your solution was to uh, build a, a theoretical wall around all of the Middle East and basically to keep them all at home. That's right, but those are... Isolationism. Extreme measures, but still we are in one planet in a globalized world. You have to play with the hands, with the cards that, that you're, you're dealt. dealt yes, exactly. You cannot go back. Yes. You can't change history. Yes. Trump is in a, a quagmire that he's trying to get out of skillfully, and I think he's doing a good job at doing it skillfully. He's not talking necessarily to the, to the students and the radicals in the universities of Egypt, which is what Obama does, because that's, that's his history yes. as a university yes. radical. Yes. He's yes. talking as a diplomat and a statesman, yes. which is what he should be doing, and I, I applaud him for that. That's right. And we cannot build your country, as he's saying. We cannot build your country. We cannot secure your future. You've got to do it. We can only help you, but you've got to change, and you've got to come up with the solution. Well, what else can he say? I'm curious, what would the leadership of Saudi Arabia be thinking of this message? I was watching them, you know, yes. while Trump was delivering the speech, and they, you get the impression that they received his message very positively. Is that real, or was that all just diplomacy? Uh, I think, well, behind the, the smile or the, or the sense of, you know, warmth of friendship between the president and the king, I think there's a lot of uneasiness. Because the facts and figures are very uneasy facts and figures. And I think a lot of presidents and prime ministers sitting in that room must have felt very uncomfortable what Trump was saying. Because if you could read, as I did, go back and read Obama, what he was saying, mm -hmm. he was blaming the problems of the Arab world and the Muslim world on what? colonialism. He said, you know, I understand your feeling because my father and I, I, we, I was, you know, Kenyan, you know, in, in, in Africa and all of these, and your problems are all to do with colonialism. Well, colonialism is over now. Almost running into yeah. 100 years. Yeah, what years. planet was he on? Precisely. <laughs> when yeah, let's stop colonialism now. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. When, are you going to take, when are you going to take responsibility? 
Where are you folks are going to stand up and face the real world, which is the, the world of 21st century? To me, that was, in a sense, the most remarkable thing about Trump. Trump is the businessman. He's not going to sit down and he's not going to engage in some sort of, a, if you don't mind, let me use the word, intellectual masturbation, you know. He's not going to do that. He is a man who is a can-do man in the classic American sense. We have a problem, let's find the solution. You know, there are a lot of my friends who are, again, upset over the fact that he's uh, giving a speech calling Islam great, which in, in one, one sense, it is great in the fact that it's huge, you know, over a billion people. But they said, why doesn't he just tell the truth, like I'm saying on this show about the real Saudi Arabia? as I see it. And the thing is that that's not his job. That's not his job, especially while he's over there, to tell another country what to do, unless that country is attacking them. Then maybe he can say something different. It's the job of the intellectuals. It's the job of the media. It's a job which is being uh, ignored. The media and the intellectuals are not doing a proper job. Precisely. And they're blaming Trump for it. Precisely. He is the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief. He is not the dean of the faculty of law of Harvard University <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or dean of the faculty of social science of Princeton University, That's like right. what Woodrow Wilson was, and sit down and rub his fingers and talk about colonialism, imperialism, you know, all the various intellectual problems that people get excited over. He's there to do a job. His main job is to get the American economy moving, get jobs and clean the deck of all the mess that has been left behind by uh, Obama. And look what the intellectuals are doing in America. They have created out of smoke and mirror the story about collusion between Trump and Russia. If there anybody who colluded with Russia was Obama oh. and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. So, but that's another story. We don't want to get into it right now. But that's what the intellectuals are doing, whereas the real problem is. Now, look at it. What is the real problem? ISIS is being smashed. And the, one of the reasons that we don't have a day-to-day, 24-by-7 coverage is because Trump and his people will not allow the fake news American media to go in and report from the battlefield because all that they will be reporting would be thing to arouse the human right groups over here into concerns about the human rights violation that is taking place. Well, what is a battle all about? It is not about human rights in, in the sense of, uh, is it not about human rights in the larger sense of who you're trying to destroy to preserve the human rights of the people that we want to see human rights grow? But in the process, there is going to be violation. And that's what is happening right now. And just to conclude this thought, Trump spoke in Riyadh on Sunday. On Monday morning, that is Riyadh time, that is 10 hours from our time, he flew to Jerusalem. That evening, that is within a cycle of less than 24 hours, ISIS, which is on the run, pulled the trigger with getting one of his sleeper cells to bomb Manchester, England. I was just going to ask you about that. Was that that was the was response to Trump's speech? I that's would say. exactly what I believe it to be. Let's, uh, let's get into Manchester after we come back from the break. Out in 
Now I give the floor to His Excellency, the President of the United States of America, Mr. Donald Trump. The floor is yours, sir. I would like to thank King Solomon for his extraordinary words and the magnificent kingdom of Saudi Arabia for hosting today's summit. I am honored to be received by such gracious hosts. I have always heard about the splendor of your country and the kindness of your citizens, but words do not do justice to the grandeur of this remarkable place and the incredible hospitality you have shown us from the moment we arrived. You also hosted me in the treasured home of King Abdul Aziz, the founder of the kingdom who united your great people. Working alongside of another beloved leader, American President Franklin Roosevelt, King Abdul Aziz began the enduring partnership between our two countries. Today we begin a new chapter that will bring lasting benefits to all of our citizens. I know that our time together will bring many blessings to both your people and to mine. I stand before you as a representative of the American people to deliver a message of friendship and hope and love. That is why I chose to make my first foreign visit a trip to the heart of the Muslim world, to the nation that serves as custodian of the two holiest sites in the Islamic faith. Our vision is one of peace, security, and prosperity in this region and all throughout the world. Our goal is a coalition of nations who share the aim of stamping out extremism and providing our children a hopeful future that does honor to God. And so this historic and unprecedented gathering of leaders, unique in the history of nations, is a symbol to the world of our shared resolve. For Americans, this is a very exciting time. See how you look. Perfect. Everything must be done with split-second precision, you understand? Yes, sir, I'll try. Try, Rachman. Try. A child tries. A man accomplishes. You must succeed. I promise I will not let you down. No, I'm sure you won't. Now remember, the explosion must follow immediately after the phone call. You understand? At precisely four o'clock. Four. 
Be certain that you are seen when you escape. It is imperative that the revolutionary Swadi students be made to look responsible for the arson and theft. Youssef Alafa was a traitor, a double agent working for the revolutionary underground. And you? You, my friend, your name will be known far and wide as a hero. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. Salim, you're saying that it's probably no coincidence that ISIS triggered this um, cell of theirs in Manchester while Obama was in transit. Be- Trump. Oh, Trump. I'm sorry. Trump. Yeah. En route from... Um, from Riyadh to Tel Aviv, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, within 24 hours, I mean, I mean, we, we can see, I mean, we can hypothesize that this was a, a response, that Trump spoke in Riyadh to the assembled heads of states and governments of the Muslim world, of the Arab Islamic world, uh, and the, one of the key messages was that we are going to destroy ISIS and that it is your job to do this and you have a responsibility and we will help you. So ISIS is on the run. ISIS is being destroyed. Their main city, Mosul, was captured last month. They're on the run from Syria. They're on the run from just about everywhere. Uh, we don't know where the leader is. There is a rumor that he has been caught. You know, that is the Caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he is uh, dead and in the rubbles. But while ISIS is on the run, ISIS is also sending a signal that we might be on the run round, but we are not defeated. We are not destroyed. You know, we have spread ourselves. And in that sense, the Manchester attack was a, a way to send the signal, a response to Trump and to the rest of the world that we are around and we can still fight and we'll continue to fight. Uh, because this is a war going on and it is an asymmetrical war. Whereas uh, American planes or Russian planes or Saudi planes and Jordanian planes are bombing cities and bombing targets from 30,000 feet up in the air or whatever it is, the asymmetrical warfare is that the agents of ISIS, the, the jihadis, they're on the ground and they're hitting soft targets. This was a soft target. Ariana Grande's uh, mm-hmm. uh, performance in Manchester, young kids, you know, there are victims who are eight-year-old, you know. So Bataclan in Paris, that was another musical thing was going on in November. Then they tried to hit the stadium where the football game was taking place last year. Oh, but so, uh, London, London, England's mayor said this is just normal reality. This is just a normal thing you have to get used to in a big city. Well, well, the, uh, who is the uh, London's <laughs> mayor? That too. He's you know, an Islamist. Yeah, is yes, who he yes, is. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's another p- problem that we have to enter into the discussion. What is the response of our governments over here? Trump spoke about the responsibility of the governments in the Middle East and the Arab world. What about us? So what is our responsibility? I think we need to ask ourselves. I was going to ask you, uh, before the show, we were, we were discussing about what we could do. Do you go in and wait for, the, for these people we know who are ISIS supporters, who have posted on Facebook that they support ISIS, posted on, on the Internet how to make bombs? Um, I think it was just a year before he did this Manchester thing. So 
MI6, MI5, whoever, they all knew about this guy. Do you go in there and preemptively arrest him because he's a potential threat? Or do you actually wait under our British common law tradition of waiting till an actual crime has been committed before you arrest him? Well, this is the dilemma we are in. But the facts and the evidence that we see are that these people, in this case Salman Abadi, the bomber, was known to the British intelligence and to the British police, just as the Sarnia brother, the Boston bomber, were known to the FBI, just as the guy who uh, carried out the attack in Orlando, in, in, in Florida, when he hit the gay club and there was over 50 or more uh, people who were killed, or just as uh, the couple that did the killing in San Bernardino, California, all of these people were known or they had been identified prior to the event. In the case of Salman Abadi, we learned from the British press based upon the information that the British press had gathered from the police and the community that the Manchester Muslim community, there's a large Muslim community in Manchester, they had for the five times reported about this bomber and his family, that they suspected that these people were not right, that they were talking languages that was radical Islamic politics. Now, today they are members of ISIS. Yesterday they were members of Al-Qaeda or Taliban. But back to it, the radical Islamic group that can be traced to the mosque or to other organization, we know that. We knew that right here in Canada, right here in the city of London that has happened. Remember, oh, yes, the guys who went, to went out to Algeria from, yes. uh, from here and did the bombing. And, and the question that you ask is, what can we do? Well, we have to seriously consider about preventive detention. Are we just going to allow this sort of thinking to go on? There is an issue of preventive detention that can be used, but there is also the question of going after the imams, the, 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 the people who are spreading this sort of ideas among our youth group, and there is no countermeasures being taken, and they're doing it openly, as a matter of deliberately. Fact, no, as a matter no. of fact, Sandra Solomon on this show has identified at least three imams in Canada who have said that apostates to Islam should be executed. And she took that as a personal attack because she's an ex-Muslim. She's an apostate. And what happens to these imams who are, who are, who are counseling murder? Nothing. These people and people like them who go counsel um, for murder, or counsel the the um, throwing off of homosexuals off buildings, or the um, uh, female genital mutilation, or, or the whole litany and list of all of the atrocities that are being uh, done supposedly in the name of Allah. These people should be arrested and imprisoned, exported if they're not Canadian, imprisoned if not for life if they are Canadian. I agree with you. And the question is, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? Because we have Justin Trudeau. Well, we have Justin Trudeau now, but we've had before that Stephen Harper, and before that we've had, you know, Jacques Chrétien, etc., etc. If we have the measures that we want to take. I think but that our political seven... leaders have, have, have decided so far not to go after this sort of problem. It's not that we couldn't do it either, because if you, you think back 70 years or so, if there was somebody with a megaphone on the street corner saying that we should embrace Nazism, we shouldn't go over there and 
and invade Germany, um, they would be arrested as, as um, conspirators, Remember, as colluding Can with the enemy. Canada and the States had a history of rounding up Japanese people during the last war, and I think there's a great guilt factor still at play. Oh, exactly. Time, right? I, I heard a stand-up comedy routine the other day and says, look, Germany, you're killing yourselves. You know, you, you apologize. We accept your apology. <laughs> Let's <laughs> stop killing your, try to kill your culture, you know, day after day. Let's move on. Talk about history. It's, it's all of that is there. But we have to make a policy decision. And what has happened, Bob said political correctness and multiculturalism. This has been my issue. I've been pointing mm, sure. this out, you know. Multiculturalism is the toxin that is destroying the West from within, because the issue is, by embracing multiculturalism, we have, in a sense, either diluted or abandoned the very characteristic of the West that made the West what it is. Good, bad, and ugly, yes, but what the good was is what attracted the rest of the world to come here. And the thing is that and Justin Trudeau does not identify that because he's even come out and said Canada has no culture. So I'd love to see what he has to say on July 1st, one, well, our 150th anniversary, about our culture. Justin Trudeau is the, <laughs> is, the, is the perfect embodiment. He's the child of multiculturalism. His father, when he enunciated multiculturalism, Justin Trudeau was not a speck in the eyes of his father or his mother, you know. So Justin Trudeau is born within the womb of a Canada that had embraced multiculturalism as an ideology. He's the end product. Not only him, because Macron is about the same age, they're contemporaries, just elected in France. Macron said the same thing. France has no culture. Yep. All right. Mm -hmm. So we, Canada has no culture. France has no culture. America has no culture. I mean, if you go back to Obama, you know, on and on and on. And that's what's been the problem. The problem, yes, you're identifying it, it, it wants, of the, the nation state versus globalism. But we have to take yeah. a break and we'll be back to talk about that in a second. Well, gentlemen, I uh, deducted fires this evening. Hmm? Um, Mr. Kuragin. Well, the, the quote from the Rubaiyat, the Eastern connotation would suggest the boy, Mickey. The boy who? Mickey, the boy Lama of Shantai. He's been in this country for dental surgery. Shantai? In the Himalayas? Well, there's an explosive little neighborhood. Not so much anymore. The people have always been divided politically, it's true. But somehow this boy has unified them, religiously. They believe him to be the reincarnation of their ancient Supreme Lama. Really? Well, as long as it keeps them off the streets. <laughs> I suppose. Those two not already finished? You know their faces. Their own organization will know they've failed. Surely they could not be running to any sort of freedom. Ten years old? I don't believe it either. So on the topic of multiculturalism, globalism and nationalism, I would, I would call it, I would call Justin Trudeau's uh, depiction of Canada having no culture as 
cultural relativism. All cultures are the same. We should all be one people, black, white, yellow, um, Saudi, Canadian, whatever. You pick a person from the country, they should be able to travel the world freely, no borders. And of course, the world isn't built that way. Unfortunately, we are still a very tribal um, world where some tribes, some groups like ours, has identified something better than being tribal, and that is honoring the individual giving the individual rights and respecting them, while as a lot of part of the country, uh, of the world rather, is still in the Stone Age. And we just can't be multicultural. We can be multi-ethnic. We can be multiracial. Nobody cares about that anymore. But multicultural? No. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, this is something I've been dealing with for the last many years. I wrote a book about this, as you know, uh, Robin. Um, and words have meaning and words have consequences. What is about Islam and Muslim that, uh, 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 that has to be spoken about so disparagingly that there is nothing about human about them? And so, you know, you, you, you know it becomes the us and them. You demonize the, the enemy, you know, of course. Right, and, and you, want to, you, you want to eliminate them. Uh, Trump uh, talked about radical Islam uh, uh, and Islamism during the campaign. He didn't back off from it. He spoke about that in Riyadh. But he also knows, just as he knows there's gravity and he cannot be a Peter Pan and float in the air, he also knows that there's two billion Muslims in the world. There's almost 60 countries that are Muslim-majority states in the world, you know, and he has to deal with them. They, 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 they are countries with all different uh, uh, backgrounds and, and, and uh, resources and, and capabilities. I mean, Trump mentioned India in his speech as a victim of Islamic terrorism uh, or ISIS-type terrorism, but India is the second largest Muslim country in the world. You know, there was the. Uh, well, that was his point to point out that more Muslims are being killed by the terrorism. Than, that's yeah. exactly. Right. He, he pointed out 95% of the mm-hmm. victims have been Muslims, you know. So people who sit in Canada and say there are no quote unquote moderate Muslim, I don't know what definition they have of moderate Muslim, but whatever it be, and they're all our enemies, and, and, and there is no nothing to talk about Islam. All of Islam is this. First of all, they have no sense of history. We can talk about this, about other religions and other traditions, given their history. But the fact of the matter is that the Muslims are fighting the Islamists. And they're fighting the Islamists with their hands tied in the back, in the sense there are all sorts of impediments on the way. You know, there are impediments. I mean, when, when Husni Mubarak or Gaddafi, bad guys, no better guys, they, they, the Don Corleones, but they were dealing with other Don Corleones and they were exactly. smashing them. Sure. Then you had the prime ministers and presidents of the, of the Western world yelling and screaming at them of human rights violation, right? I mean, you had Anwar Sadat, I mean, uh, going to Jerusalem, making peace with Israel, coming back home and being killed. By whom? Not by some, you know, aliens coming from Mars, but the very forerunners of ISIS, right? So these are the dangerous things that we are dealing with. It's far more complicated than sitting and having a conversation as you and I are doing right over here. Totally agree. Um, But I think there are... As Canadians sitting in this room in London, Ontario, I think there are things that we can do besides 
uh, broadcasting our, our viewpoints on this. Um, there Hold are, there our are, political leaders responsible exactly. and accountable. You That's what we are doing. And we have That's evil. the source of all the problems. No, I mean, I look at Tommy Robinson over in England, yes. who has been arrested so many times on trumped-up charges. Exactly. His home searched, his equipment seized, his friends mm-hmm. um, badgered by the police, solely because the police and the government have a policy of not, don't upset the Muslims. Appeasement, that's exactly. the word. Exactly. Appeasement. And, we and that's what we that. have been doing. We have political leaders in the Western world, including ours, maybe ours is no better or no worse, depending upon how we analyze it. But but the standard operating procedure for the last 20 years since 9-11 has been that don't talk about these things because, you know, you are going to then hurt the sentiments and feeling of those people who we need to win our elections with. I almost feel the opposite way. I think the, that you can earn their respect and their support by talking about it honestly. Right. And, 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 I, and I think my, you know, you, both of you and have become dear friends of mine over a period of time, and you've invited me so many times, and I've sat across your table. And I've learned it. a great deal from you, Salim. Uh, thank <laughs> you. But the, but the point I was reaching out to, you all know my background. You mm-hmm. know that I'm a Muslim. I'm not an ex-Muslim. No. To the Muslims, I'm an apostate and all. I've made no bones about this, but I have put my issues right on the table. I, I'm not a theocrat. I've been fighting the theocrats. I've been talking about the issue that the great issues or the great struggle within the world of Islam is the struggle that the West went through to defeat the theocrats, to separate religion from politics. Religion is a matter of personal faith, you know. What I do or how I pray or how I live my life is my answer to my God Mm -hmm. and it's nobody else's business. But when I sit with you and when I am in Canada and I'm a Canadian, I follow not only Canadian laws, but I defend them. I'm a proud Canadian. I want to fight for Canada. I can only fight for Canada with words, with my writing, you know, speaking about it to my students, you know. What I have seen in the last X number of years, you know, I'm coming close to 45 years in Canada. That's more than a generation. That's more than uh, the life that Justin Trudeau has lived in this world. The sad thing that I see, I I was sharing these thoughts with my friend over breakfast this morning, is I see this great country of ours being diminished over time. Mm -hmm. We are being constantly diminished. Diminished by whom? Not by the immigrants. I am an immigrant. I came to be a Canadian. But then the immigrants are being told, oh, you don't have to be a Canadian. You be a Jamaican. You be a Trinidadian. You be a Vietnamese. And if they want to be Canadian, what it is to be Canadian, they don't know. You, you they bring don't, up a, they, you, they are you, not being taught what it is to be. Or to have pride. We are tearing down in our school system the very schools that allowed and provided hope to the native population. I mean, I was educated by Jesuit priests. 
So you know, I. I went to a Catholic <laughs> There's school. There's a coincidence for you. Right? And now these schools, that is, you know, look at the attack upon upon the church schools with yeah. Canada. You know, and and uh, last month in in in, in Ontario, uh, the school boards went out with the notice that they're not going to teach Shakespeare anymore. They're going to teach, you know, whatever is the preferred literature or whatever is your cultural background. You're right? kidding. I hadn't even heard about you that. You talk about the, um, I, I guess, the modern moderation of Islam and the um, uh, the changing of Islam to become more secular and more um, open to individual uh, behavior, much as Catholicism and Christianity did over 2,000 years. 500 years. This is the 500th anniversary of Luther. Oh, of but course, yeah, but I mean, it took yeah. 2,000 yeah. Well, years. Yeah, it took course, 1,500 yes, years yes, for yeah. Luther to come around. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it only took maybe, uh, if you go yeah. back 100 years, 150 years in our own history, women dressed moderately. Yeah. Women could not go out with their ankles showing. Yeah. Women could got, not go out. If they had long necks, they would have been shunned. It comes if down you know, to... And, and you, that's not only the one thing. You talk about uh, personal behavior and all of that. We only developed personal freedom, the ability to dress as you want, to say what you want, in the last 100 years, I would say. Yes. Yeah. It comes down to what the struggle is. The respect for the individual freedom, isn't it? Yes. It all comes down to, I mean, if there's one equation of this very large topic to discuss, it could go into volumes, it comes down to a society that caters for, respects, and defends the individual freedom. There is no meaning of freedom until it is individual freedom. Isn't it? The fundamental fact of bi- biological fact is that it takes two people to bring a child into this world. Or as Hillary Clinton famously said, <laughs> it takes a village to raise a child. But that's a biological fact, you know, <laughs> that, 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 and a philosophical fact that the we precedes the I. The we is a priori. So a society that remains tied down to the we factor, that is a group identity, the group factor, crushes the individual. It is how you liberate the individual within that collective and you balance the collective with the freedom of the individual because ultimately it is the individual that is the dynamics of change, not the group. The group is the home, the shelter, and then there is the individual. That's the struggle that is a long, laborious struggle. We are in North America as much involved in that struggle to allow the individual to live up to his and her full potential, and now the individual even to choose whether he wants to remain a he or turn into a she and so on and so forth. Well, philosophically, we don't have a quarrel with that. We have a issue how we're going to get about there. But that's a struggle that the Muslim world, Indians, Chinese, Japanese are engaged in, you know. So when people talk about Islam, my question to them is, what do you know about Islam? What do you mean by Islam? It is the people. It is the people. Islam is an abstraction. Christianity is an abstraction. The cross is Christianity, but it's an abstraction. It's only a symbol. Because behind that symbol lies the entire history of 2,000 years, isn't it? Yes. Right? So 
so Islam is also the word and the Quran and the mosque are symbols of a civilization. So you see some hope. So, uh, I see more than hope. I see what it is. I mean, you had a woman as a guest who is an ex-Muslim. She finds her individuality as an ex-Muslim in Canada, not where she was born. And she, she couldn't. And she appreciates she it too. Precisely. And, and, and the issue is that that civilization will mature, will prosper when it realizes that this woman has the right to be whoever she wants to be. That's right. And that, in fact, would be Islam because it is respecting the individual. Uh, thank you once again, Salim, and we'll definitely get together again in the future to continue these liberating conversations. In the meantime, join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. <laughs> That was the press office, Minister. Looks as if the, the papers may want a statement about the Qumran bribery allegation. A statement? Well, what am I going to say? Well, I'm sure the press office can devise something convincing and meaningless. After all, that's what they're paid for. 